Welcome to Twisted News, guys. I'm Andrew Fitzgerald, and thank you for tuning in. For today's episode, we're going to talk about a young couple who were part of a secret society and then murdered somebody, followed by the story of a man who showed too much interest in a crime, and then he ended up being part of it. So sit back and relax if you can, and get ready for Scary Mysteries Twisted News. Number one, Secret Society Killers. There's a need in all of us to create connections with other people. To do so, in its most basic form, we connect with one another by finding common ground. All throughout history and into today, people have formed smaller groups and societies where they can freely express themselves and feel supported and understood. Sometimes it's a Facebook group or a place to meet up and play sports. However, not all groups are created equal and not all societies are harmless. As proven over time, there have been several secret societies that have been responsible for some of the most heinous and terrible crimes against humanity. This case may not be as grave as some of the ones you've heard about, but it's just as disturbing and horrifying. Around 1.45 in the afternoon, on the 29th of October of 2022, police arrived at an apartment complex located on the 5900 block of Jaguar Drive in Santa Fe, New Mexico, to respond to a call from Linda Montoya. She reported to the police that her 25-year-old son, Isaac Apotica, told her that his girlfriend, 19-year-old Kira McCulley, was trying to kill his 21-year-old ex-girlfriend, Grace Jennings. The apartment belonged to Kira's mother, Lena McCulley, but the young couple lived in the detached garage. Reports say that on the evening of October 28th, Grace arrived at the couple's residence to stay the night. It wasn't exactly clear who actually initiated this, as different reports say Isaac invited Grace to come over and stay the night, while others noted that it was Grace who asked Isaac if she could spend the night. However, according to Isaac, it was apparent that Kara didn't like this one bit. She was upset about the setup, but still, the three of them slept in the same bed. However, in the morning, according to Isaac, Kara kicked him and Grace out of the house completely. He then went ahead and packed his things. At about noon, he used the bathroom in the house, and after a couple of minutes, he returned to find Grace's dead body. Kira looked at him and told him that she had done it, and that was when he contacted his mother, who immediately called the police. On the surface, it may seem like the intent for the murder was obvious. Kira was upset and in a jealous, fueled rage, so much so that she committed the murder. However, as police started to investigate, they started to uncover more of what was really behind the intent of this senseless killing. See, apparently, aside from being in a relationship, Isaac and Caro were also part of a secret organization led by Isaac himself. It was called Ghost, which was, as described by Kira, a group that gets rid of people who are in charge of sex trafficking or hurting kids. But this case didn't involve sex traffickers or child abusers. Isaac allegedly told Kira that she could advance her ranks in the platoon of the secret society if she did something which was to kill Isaac's ex-girlfriend. In a text message later discovered by cops, they learned that Isaac was seemingly egging on Kara to kill Grace, 
One text read, I am wanting you to kill her, you to end your suffering by ending her joy. Another chilling text that Isaac allegedly sent to Grace read, Remember, you'll move up in the ranks. Plus, you get perks in the black market since this is your first. He followed this up with the information that for a couple of years, Kara had the intention to kill Grace. What he didn't share with the cops was the fact that during those times, he would openly convince his girlfriend to act on her troubling desire. It seemed that Isaac, after it actually happened, intentionally tried to pin the crime on Kara alone, but the investigators were quick to call this one out. The authorities also discovered that the couple intensively talked about this crime over text, everything from killing the victim while she slept, all the way up to cleaning up the crime scene using an ice washer and hydrogen peroxide. When they interviewed Kira, she admitted that she was upset over Grace spending the night. She allegedly even told the police that she had been angry over Grace in the past and fantasized about killing her which seemed to corroborate Isaac's statement. According to her, her anger was rooted in having been raped by about 16 to 17 men while Grace watched and even collected the money. While the police found a sexual assault report in 2020, the details Kara shared didn't match or weren't included in this report. However, she also told them that come Saturday, She could not actually remember what happened and partly blamed it on her undiagnosed multiple personality disorder. Still, despite purportedly not remembering anything, she openly admitted to officers that she was partially hopeful that Grace was dead. When the authorities arrived at the crime scene, they found Grace lifelessly bleeding from numerous injuries that she obtained from being stabbed or cut with a sharp object. The injuries also showed attempts to decapitate her. Also in the room was the weapon used to murder her, a three-foot-long metal sword with blood all over it. No further information has been released regarding this sword, particularly about who owned it or where it came from. But now both Isaac and Kara face the following charges, first-degree murder, as well as conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and Kira also faces a tampering-with-evidence charge. The story has two angles, both of which are probably part of it. On the one side, it seems rooted in a personal vendetta or jealousy, perhaps a bit of both. But there's also the fact that Kara's boyfriend was a supposed leader of a society that banked on anger to justify the killing of a human being. Whether Kira actually believed she was going to rise up in the ranks or not is yet to be decided. But hopefully... They'll have their day in court and let the jury decide. Number two, man obsessed with crime. All the information we need is just one click away. It's become apparent that interests in stories and documentaries about true crime seem to have grown in no time. If you're listening to this, you're probably one of them, so you know what I'm talking about. People have become increasingly invested not only in learning about the cases, but also in inserting themselves into the investigations, hoping to possibly solve them. These people are called online sleuths. They devote not only their time and opinion in cases, but also their resources to help in solving the case. 
But there's a thin line between being genuinely enthusiastic and helping keep a case active and being enthusiastic over a case because that person is actually involved in it. In 1984, just five days before Christmas, 12-year-old Janelle Matthews arrived at her home in Greeley in Weald County, Colorado after participating in a Christmas choir concert. It was about 8 in the evening, but the house was empty. Her father was with her sister at a basketball game, and her mother was on a trip to be with Janelle's grandfather. When the father got home, about an hour later, he found Janelle's stuff there and other signs that his daughter had been home, but there was no sign of Janelle. Soon he called the police, hopeful that they'd be able to find her. Almost 35 years later, Matthews and the investigators still had no clue regarding Janelle's whereabouts. During the night of her disappearance, they noted that there were no signs of forced entry or struggle of any kind, as everything in the house looked normal. The only clue they really had were the footprints the investigators saw outside the windows, an indication that someone had been looking in. And this would eventually steer this case from a disappearance to an abduction. And one man became heavily invested in the case, but oddly enough, he wasn't related to the family in any way. Now, this man was named Stephen Pankey. He was 33 during the time of the disappearance, and he started to keep himself updated on the case, as later revealed by his ex-wife. He was a former resident of Greeley, and on the night of the disappearance stated that he and his former wife, Angela Hicks, were at home. A couple of days later, they went on a trip, but as Angela recalled, Stephen intentionally scanned the radio to listen to the developing case of the disappearance, which was out of character for him. When they got back home, the man continued to do this and even forced her to scan the newspapers for reports and articles concerning this case. Not only that, but the DA of Weld County, Michael Rourke, said Stephen also inserted himself into the investigation by making several claims about the case and incriminating statements over the years. See, he claimed to have seen some students from the same school Janelle attended walking home. He also made a statement that upon the abduction of Janelle, the tracks and the snow were deliberately covered up by using a rake, an important detail which was never made public. He also tried to seek out immunity deals in exchange for information he said he had regarding the case, as well as writing letters to the court and police about other information he thought would help him in his request. All these he did way back in 1999. Because of this, along with his seemingly undying interest in the case of Janelle, despite not having any concrete evidence to tie him to it at all, he was finally announced as the longtime person of interest in 2019. Back on July 24th of 2019, the remains of Janelle were found by oil and gas workers as they dug a rural field in Weld County. Along with her skeletal remains were the clothes she had on when she went missing. Later on, investigators were able to identify that her cause of death was a single gunshot wound to her head, execution style. About two months later, Stephen's property was searched by police, being the person of interest in Janelle's murder. On October 13, 2020, he was indicted on first-degree murder and kidnapping. 
His ex-wife, Angela, in a statement in 2020 to help the investigators with the case, said that just shortly after their family trip, Stephen actually started to dig in their backyard. Then, after two days, a vehicle on his property was engulfed in flames, which he later got rid of. Most likely, this vehicle was used to abduct the girl. It was also revealed that in 2008, Stephen and Angela's son was murdered. During the funeral, it was reported that Angela heard her ex-husband say the following, I hope God didn't allow this to happen because of Janelle Matthews. Despite his questionable actions over the years, especially with how he couldn't seem to let go of the case, Stephen Pankey insisted still on his innocence. In 2014 and 2018, he ran for governor of Idaho. His initial trial in the case in 2021 ended in a mistrial because of a hung jury who voted to convict him on one count of misdemeanor for making false statements to authorities. And then a year later, he was finally found guilty of the kidnapping and murder of Janelle, received a 20-year-to-life prison sentence, and right now, he's 71 years old. The Matthews family could finally say they have received closure and justice now. Perhaps it was a good thing that the now-convicted suspect for the crime committed to their loved one couldn't exactly remove himself from the case. Whether out of guilt or intense curiosity, we can't really say why. But, at least, this led to a case finally being solved. So there were two of the most disturbing news stories that we have for you guys today. If you enjoyed this, please like it, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one.